In just a moment, I'm going to read you some verses from the book of Hebrews that talk about Christ as God calls us to worship. But before I do that, I want to ask you this question. How do you prove to yourself and to others that your life matters? If you were to think for a moment, how are you trying to prove to yourself and to prove to others that your life really matters? I can tell you I'm tempted every week to stand up here and think that what I do on Sundays justifies my entire existence. What about you? Worship is not an escape. It's not a new drug or some kind of spiritual drug. Worship is when we interact with the living God. And when he deals with us about our lives and gets us to reflect and think. And maybe even experience anew how wonderful his grace is. How are you trying to prove to yourself and to others that your life matters? The Bible says this. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I'd love to look with you this morning in Leviticus 19. If you have no idea what I just said and you have a Bible, open it up in the third book from the left. That's the one we're looking at. Uh, we're going to read a smattering of verses from this chapter, but we're going to think about the whole chapter together, um, and I'll read those verses to you in just a moment and for you in just a moment. Uh, but before we do that, I want to remind you of the framework of this whole year together. I want to remind you about what we're thinking about uh, this entire year through the worship service, in particular in the sermon series as we work through the Bible together. If you get these three numbers down, you'll understand the framework of what we're doing. Number three, four, and five. If you get what those numbers mean, you'll understand where we're going this year. Three, three loves. Elizabeth just explained those to you probably better than I can, so I'll say just a little bit. From the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, God has created us to love him, love others, and love the place where he's put us. That's always been his mission. That's always been his plan for mankind. He's always wanted us to love him, love others, and love the place where he's put us. Um, four, four-part story. When you look at the scriptures themselves, they tell a four-part story. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. Most of us have grown up in situations as we've been in church when we've heard a two-part story. Rebellion and redemption. And the word of God is actually far deeper and broader and bigger than that. It's a four-part story. Four-part story. Five threads. Five threads. Three loves, four-part story, five threads. You can see these threads beginning in Genesis 3, and they'll go all the way to Revelation 22. Five threads. So that means whether we go back and look at Genesis 3 like we did, or as we continue to advance forward in the scriptures, we'll find these five threads. Thread number one, God has always had a people. He has always been building his church. He's always had a people. He's always building his church. Two. Wickedness is real, but it never gets the last word. 
Evil and sin and wickedness are real, but they never, ever get the last word. Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22 tell us that. Third thread, grace. Grace. From Genesis 3 all the way to the end, grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Grace. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. He didn't die to make something possible. He didn't rise from the dead to make something possible. Jesus actually did something and accomplished something. Your greatest breakthrough is not in the future. It's in the past. It's happened in Christ. He did it. Jesus has won the victory. He's done something. Let's see. Four. Was that three or four? That was four? So I got one left? All right. Everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything. Every, everything in the scriptures is moving toward Christ. My life is moving toward Christ. The world is moving toward the return of Christ. Like even if you're here this morning and you don't believe, your life is moving toward Jesus. Everything is moving toward Jesus. All right, that's three, four, and five. I need to stop because I have a sermon I need to preach. Three, four, five. Make sense? You've heard those? I'll probably do that a couple more weeks and then we'll take a break and then come back to it. So Ponder those things, if you will. Leviticus 19, let's start in the first four verses. This is God's word. We actually get to receive this and think about this this morning. This is God's gift to us. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall, excuse me, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Now look at verse 17 through 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Then let's look at verse 31 through 37. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. By the way, that's one of my favorite words in the entire Bible, necromancer. Yeah, because I've never used that in my life. I've never used that word ever. Y'all ever heard of that word? You have? Wow. I knew you guys were smart, but that's really impressive. All right, well, then I'm going to share with you what I learned that this word means when we go through the sermon. Uh, do not seek them out, picking up the middle, verse 31, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord, when the, sojourners, when the stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. You shall, not, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. 
Ye shall have just balances, just weights, and a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this gift of your word. Would you help us to understand it and think through these laws together and ultimately, Holy Spirit, bring us to understand our Savior. Help us to see the power of your grace at work here, that our lives might make a little bit more sense, that the hope that is ours might be a little bit more real, and that we might see the Savior in redemption as someone and something that we need over and over and over. We pray this for your glory. We pray this for our good. We pray this so that you would have your way through Jesus. Amen. The story is told of a, a very successful owner of a car dealership, and he finally gets up, uh, up enough courage after a number of years to go and talk to his pastor. So he goes up to his pastor and has a conversation with him and basically says to his pastor, Hey, pastor, I have really been thinking through how in the world can I show my customers that I am a believer? I want some advice. How can I prove to my customers that I love Christ? What I've thought about, Pastor, is maybe I'll buy them a book or, and leave it on the dashboard or some type of little booklet or something. Maybe I could give them a Bible. Maybe I could do something and leave it in the car so they would know that I love Jesus. And the pastor, knowing that this man was a ruthless miser, said to him, why don't you try to be generous? Instead of giving them some type of gift to prove that you're a believer, why don't you just treat them fairly? Sounds like a good response, doesn't it? I want to show you an even better response. Not because what that pastor says was inappropriate or wrong, but Leviticus 19 gives us a better answer to that type of question. And that answer is one word, holiness. Holiness. If you want to know what the idea is this morning that we're going to talk about, it's this, holiness. If you want to know what to take out these doors and beg God to work into your life this week, it's this, holiness. This whole chapter is about holiness. Now, because it's so vast and I didn't read the whole chapter, you'll notice in the bulletin that I have for you four areas that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the family. We're at home. We're going to look at work. We're going to look at worship. And we're going to look at generosity. We're going to look at holiness in those four areas. All the verses are before you. Um, I'm not going to read all of them to you, but I'll refer to them as we go through each of these four together and think about holiness. So let's start right where God does with this chapter. Holiness at home. Look in verse 3, I believe. God starts out by saying things like this. You know what? I'm going to do it this way. Children. I have a message for you. God wants you to look at your parents as a gift. I know, try to take that in. It's really hard because I'm going to tell you something. 
and I'm going to say what you know deep down in your heart that you might not be able to say yet, your parents are messed up. And I say that as a messed up parent. And they are going to make mistakes. You're on the receiving end of that. There are times in which they will instruct you or discipline you out of anger. And you will know it. And they might not ever want to admit it. There are times when your parents will tell you one thing and then they might do another. There are times when they may make promises to you and then not carry them out. And all of that is true. All of it's true. But God wants you to understand that he's given you a mom and a dad as a gift. And he wants you to learn by his grace and strength to respect them and honor your parents. He wants you to care about what they say. And oh, by the way, let me let you know a little secret. You're one of the ways that God is going to make them more like Jesus. You're a gift to them. And everything that you bring into your relationship with your parents, oh, it's going to be hard for them too. But learn how to respect your parents and honor them. And beloved, those of us that aren't young in age, we still have to honor our parents. And those of you that are older than me, you know what it's like to try to honor your parents as you become the real adult who's in your right mind. God wants us to honor our parents, whether we're old or young, tiny or large, no matter what age, love and revere our parents. And God even adds an accent here that isn't found in Exodus 20, the original in codifying of the law. Notice who God puts first here. Honor your mother and your father. Exodus has it in the reverse. God wants us to know that he wants us as children to honor our father. It's true. And he also wants us to specifically honor our mother, and that is true. And no matter how hard it may be to do that, just know that working together, as you honor one another and respect one another, you'll bring glory to God. God also says things about this at the home. Other verses in this chapter talk about, let's imagine, verse 20 through 22 actually lays out a very specific judicial case and even a nuance within that particular uh, judicial case. And I'm not going to give you all the details. Here's the the gist of it. If you're engaged to be married, and if one of you sleeps with someone else to whom you're not married, God sees that as just wrong. He just sees that as wrong and that restitution should be made. And that means if you have been in a relationship before in which you have been engaged with someone and you have been promised, someone has promised themselves to you even before the wedding day, you've promised to be together and they end up cheating on you for whatever reason, just know the pain and the hurt you have is real and God says it's not right. That shouldn't happen. Wrong is wrong. It's wrong. If you look a little bit later after those verses, what we find out is another obvious statement. Parents, don't prostitute your children. Apparently that's always been a struggle. Parents, don't give your children into prostitution. It doesn't bring honor to God. It's just wrong. Look at verse 32. Honor those among you who are old in the face, those who are gray, those who are old. Stand, give them honor. God wants us to respect those who are older than we are. 
God wants us to honor those who have much more experience in life than we do. He wants us to give them due respect. You see, holiness occurs at home, in the family. Husband to wife, parent to child, elderly. How a parent relationship, this is the point. The family is supposed to be the safest place. And all of us have experienced and all of us know what it's like to live in a home that isn't perfect. And because the home is supposed to be the safest place, the scars that we have and the wounds that we have, because of our families, can be some of the deepest and the most difficult. And God acknowledges that. That's why he says these things, because he cares about you. And if you've been through hardship and have scars, guess what? I guarantee you God will agree. And you can take it to him and you can seek his help because he cares about the family. Holiness at work. Work, work, work. If you look through these verses, the verses that are laid out there that are grouped together, you'll find out that God says to us in our jobs, he wants us to be honest. He does not want us to rob from one another. He wants us to be truthful in how we relate to one another. Um, He even says things about how when we deal with one another at the end of the chapter that we are to conduct ourselves in such a way that the, the products that we have, the things that we're selling, the services that we're giving are represented absolutely transparently and truthfully. So we're saying in literal ways, this is what my product weighs, this is what my product can do, this is what it is. We're not misrepresenting it, we're not spinning it, we're not slanting it, we're being 100% honest about what it is and what it can do. And God says, be honest when you do that. I'm going to make this very clear for you because, actually I'll do that in a second, no, I'll do it now, because this is very personal for me. When I go to the grocery store, if the half gallon, if my carton of ice cream says half gallon, it better be a half gallon. (laughs) Extrapolate that out into your entire life. Say what you mean and mean what you say. What you tell people you're going to do for them, do it. Don't rob, don't steal, transparency, honesty. And when you deal with one another, know that it's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge. There are even laws in here about how you work and relate to people that have some type of disability. Someone that is blind, don't put something in front of them that makes them stumble and fall. God's saying, think about those that you work with and the way that you work and how you work. Do it with transparency and honesty and integrity. Third, worship. Look at those verses. All of those verses are describing worship. God starts off by saying in verses 5 through 8, look, give me your best. And oh, by the way, that doesn't mean bring your best accomplishments that you think you have and present those accomplishments to God. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about bringing who you really are. As much as you know of yourself, give it to God. That's what he's saying. Don't shortchange him. Don't give him peace of your life, but leave this other area of your life untouched by him and what he says. He's saying, give me who you are. 
He's not saying, bring me your best accomplishments that you are most proud of and present them to me and let me calculate and double count what you've done and make sure that your good things outweigh your bad things. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, no, I'm being serious. Like, give me yourself. Give me who you are as you are. Then he says, and by the way, in doing that, that means beware about giving yourself to pagan things. Don't worship other gods. Don't live the way that they expect life to be lived. He even gets down into the nitty-gritty of talking about don't go uh, seeking mediums and necromancers. By the way, that word is conveying something that many of you apparently already know, which is there used to be people who would go talk to people who talked to the dead, and they sought advice from someone who talked to the dead. So I need to know what to do with my life. Can you tell me what my great-grandmother would do? God saying, don't mess with that stuff. He even says, um, don't cut your hair, don't trim your beard, and don't put a tattoo on your body that means that you will be primarily identified with another God. So God says, I'm the one true God. There are other gods out there. Don't cut your hair because in the ancient world, people used to cut their hair in a specific way to be an identifying marker to say, that's my God. People used to trim their beards in certain ways so that they would say, that beard would point to, that's my God. People would get tattoos and mark up their body to identify, that's what my God wants me, how my God wants me to mark my body. God is saying, in total, what I want you to do is give, again, all that you are to me. I'm the only one who should define who you are. I'm the one who defines your entire life. So, worship me with all that you are. Beware of those who do not worship me and, want to, and you want to follow the pattern that they have. He even says things like, uh, at the end of verse 19, I think, he talks about, this, uh, one of the reasons I read this is because this is something that people ask me about occasionally, um, where it says that we're not supposed to wear garments that have two different kinds of fabric, two different kinds of materials. Well, let me tell you what that law was meaning, why it was there. The only people that were allowed to wear um, garments with two different materials were the priests. And they were commanded to wear those particular garments because it marked them out. Because whenever you had issues of, that were spiritual in nature, God wanted you to go to a real legitimate priest. He wanted, to go, he wanted you to go to someone who was called and tasked with that responsibility. He didn't want you to go to a poser. He wanted you to go to someone that he has put in that place. I'll give you a modern example. None of us should go online and buy a policeman's badge and put it on and start going around arresting people and investigating crimes. No one in this room should do that unless you are an official police officer. It's the same principle. Because if you have a problem and someone has done something to you and I bought a badge on the internet and you know I'm not a policeman, guess what? I can't do anything for you. But you need to know who to go to and it ought to be clear 
so that you're not confused with where to go when you need justice and when you need someone who can really investigate things. That's all that God's saying with the principle here. I've designated these to have the responsibility to care for your soul. They even have garments so you can notice them anywhere that you see them. When you need help, they're all over the place. They're amongst all my people, and you can go talk to them. And those who haven't been given those garments, you, can't, you should know it. You shouldn't trust them when you go to talk about spiritual things because they haven't been given, authorized, that responsibility by God. Worship includes all of that. And this is so important because what we find in verse 4, the problem that we all have is idolatry. should be no surprise that God talks about that again and again and again and again. You see, we all need to beware of idols. And I realize we read these words and we read some of the phrases and what happens and we think to ourselves, you know what, I've never bowed down to anything. I hardly remember a time when I even got on my knees and bowed down before God. I never give homage to anyone other than God. I don't know what you're talking about. Idols, what is that? Well, we talk about this a lot. You see, God is always concerned with our heart. And if you really want to know yourself and you want to know how you work and you want to know how to bring change into your life, you've got to get to the heart. The message of God in the Bible is not a behavioral modification plan. It's never been that way, and it never will be. God is always after the heart. And so if we're going to understand ourselves, we have to understand our hearts and what motivates our heart and what our heart is attached to and what drives and influences our hearts. You see, idolatry is the problem underneath all of our problems. If you want to know how to deal with your own heart and how to understand your own heart, think about what it is that gives you worth and what you're banking on to give yourself value and worth. That's why I asked from the beginning in the call to worship for you to think about how are you trying to prove to yourself and to others that you're worth something? Because most of us spend time crafting a career, pursuing education, managing our schedules so that they all will serve me. And when hard work and education and career and calendar serve me and bring me joy and bring me meaning and significance in my life, it's an idol. And God is not saying don't pursue education, don't pursue a career. He's not saying don't pursue wealth. He's not necessarily saying any of those things. He's saying if those things are ultimate in your life and they are the things that bring you worth and value, they're an idol. And if you want to go a little bit further, what is it in your life that just causes your heart to just absolutely uh, swell with joy and hope? What is it? And what is it in your life that when something happens and it doesn't quite go the way that you want, you just feel absolutely devastated? You see, an idol doesn't just have to be our career or our education or how we manage our schedule so that they all end up serving me. You know another idol that we can have and that I am tempted to have all the time? My family and my children. So that when my children excel in a particular area of their lives, what I think is 
I feel my heart soaring and swelling, and I think to myself, oh, yeah, wasn't they didn't get that from Jenny. <laughs> they got that from me. And whenever my children do something in public that's perhaps, we'll say, embarrassing, and in my job, I have somewhat of an upfront in front of people job, you know, you know this. Many of you are sympathetic toward this. You know what it's like to live your lives where you feel like you're in a fishbowl. People see everything you do. They care about everything you do. They pay attention to when you're home, when you're not, what kind of cars you drive, yada, yada, yada. You know what that's like. So when my children do something in public and it's not exactly what I would want them to do and I feel devastated because of what they've done, and I begin to think, if they do this again, these people are going to think I'm a horrible parent. You ever feel the weight of that? either as a child or as a parent? Have you even observed that in others? You see, being a parent can be an idol too. We can make our children little representations of us that exist to serve me rather than remembering that they're a gift. What about you? Where are the idols in your life? Because God's saying, don't worship them Know them, identify them, make war with them, but you ought to only worship me. I ought to be the one that defines everything about you. And finally, generosity. God has all these laws here that talk about generosity. And in particular, there are laws to care for those who are strangers and aliens for those who are just passing through, sojourners, for those who are marginalized and those that are weak and those that are helpless, God has laws to care for them. And what he says is, remember, this is an agrarian society. When this was written, he was writing to people that farmed and all that sort of thing. And this is what he would say. When it's time to reap the harvest, leave the corners of your fields untouched. So if someone is new to town, someone is new to your country, when they have no idea how society works, they have no idea where to go, they, may, they might not even know much of the language at all, people can point to them and say, you can go to this field, any of the corners, and you can gather the sustenance that you need to support you and your family, at least for a short time, to get acclimated and understand more. God even says it's not just the corner of the fields. If you go back and read the verses, he says, when you're collecting the harvest and something falls to the ground, don't bend over and pick every little thing up. Leave it so that people can gather resources and supplies they need, not only from the corners of the fields, but also there'll be a sprinkling of it throughout your field so that people can have what they need to live. You see, in our day and age, it's the same thing. God doesn't want us always thinking about how to maximize profits. And I know that's really hard because you all live in places and work for people where all they care about is the bottom line. And so if nothing else, I hope this hits you as a breath of fresh air. 
that you can think about your job and realize I don't have to try to increase the bottom line all the time as if if I increase the bottom line, therefore I'm worth something. Then I can get promoted and people will respect me and I'll get new titles. God's like, no, I want businesses and people who care about other people, who are wanting to work to provide for others and help others. And if this sounds really foreign or really harsh or whatever it is, if this sounds really hard for you, understand this. God is far more welcoming than we ever are. He is far more welcoming than we ever could be. Every one of us in this room, we are the strangers. We are the sojourners. Remember, God's people were Jewish. We are not. We're the strangers. And God pursued us. And God welcomed us. And God provided for us. He says, be holy. Be holy at home, at work, in worship, all of your life. Be holy in generosity. All right, here's the question. So those are the four things we're thinking about with holiness. So here's my question. Here's my second point where I try to drive this home. Here's the question. So as you sit here this morning, and maybe you've heard some of that, checking in and out, whatever, but you're here because you want to bring that into your life, let me ask you this question. What is it that you think you're really after as a follower of Jesus? What is it you're really after? And if you were to try to be honest... What do you think the church is really after in its pursuit of Jesus? What is, the, what is the church really after? And if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with the truth claims of Christianity, thinking about Christianity, willing to explore Christianity, completely unsure about Christianity, not liking Christianity, here's my question for you. What do you see that the church is really after? Really, I want to know. What do you, when you observe people that say they follow God and, Je- and follow Jesus and believe in him, what do you see that they're really after? Here are some suggestions I'll throw out there for you. We think coming to Jesus oftentimes means that this is how I get to be better than other people. We see following Jesus means what I'm really after is some type of cultural power. They really want God because we're gonna, we want to we wanna control culture. Here's another option for you to think about. That we aren't really after Jesus because we want to fix people. They just did what we said, we could fix them. Here's another thing I'll suggest. That what we're really after when we come to Jesus is that we have all the answers. Maybe you could add more to that. Maybe less. Maybe one of those hits you differently than another. But I want you to understand none of those are why you were created. None of them. It's not how and why God created you. God created you and me to be holy. He created us as holy. And he created us to be holy. Think about the story with me just for a moment. 
God created male and female, and he gave them one prohibition. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree, right? And then he said, but explore the entire world. Explore it. Go through your life, live in this world in which you get to find animals and tame animals and name animals. Explore this world so you can understand what it's like to organize the resources that I have put on earth, manage them, enable them to grow, cause them to produce more and more, help to fit things together and see how it all fits and ultimately testifies of me. God gave you relationship. He gave you marriage. God gave us sex. Did you ever take that in? That is a gift he has given to husband and wife in marriage. That's from God. God has given us all these things. He created us holy and to be holy. And somehow we have taken this idea of holiness and twisted it into this is how I have all the answers. This is how I fix people. This is how I get cultural power. And this is how I get to, you know, be better than everyone. And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. And God has given us so much more. Holiness is not a formula. Holiness is not getting the algorithm right. Holiness is not like writing code that if you just put all the things in, you'll get the result and the product that you want. That's not holiness. As one man has said, holiness is not an absence, it's a flood. It's a deluge of generosity. It's a deluge of love. It's an overflow of love from us out in every conceivable direction. That's what holiness is. And that means that we can have holiness in our homes. It's the overflow of love at work in our homes between husband and wife, between parents and children, between children and their parents, between those that are older between those that are engaged and those that are not. It is holiness. It's a flood of love in every direction. Holiness is a flood at work in which there's a deluge of grace and mercy that's worked out in your lives at work that compels you to be honest and truthful and sincere. It's a holiness that overflows in understanding that everything about your life is worship. And that means even thinking about what it is that really drives your heart, meaning get to know your idols. And holiness is an overflow of generosity in which we're looking for others that aren't like us, that are marginalized. If God brings them into our paths, if we pursue that, to look and see where we can be generous toward those who are in need. Now, here's the thing. The takeaway from this is not have a better home, work harder, worship more, just be more generous. The only way that we can do any of this is what? Jesus, right? This is not, these are not new boxes for you to go now perform. This is how you got to understand the gospel. This is how you need to understand God. 
the only way that we can do any of these things, the only way that the love will overflow out of us into others is if we first know the love of God for us. When you read back through this chapter 16 times, God says, I am the Lord, your God. God is saying, I belong to you. All that I've done has been for you and my glory. I've pursued you. This is why when you read throughout the chapters and you read about things that people have done or whatever, they always will bring a sacrifice. This has happened, therefore, a sacrifice needs to be made. You see, God has pursued us in love. He has brought us out of darkness in love. And the people of the Old Testament, God's people before the coming of Christ, they built their lives around understanding God, God being with them, and sacrifices. When you read back through this chapter and see sacrifices sprinkled throughout, you realize that what they're doing is they're bringing the blood of something else and the significance of that into their lives. They mistreat one another, guess what? That requires sacrifice. Haven't been honest at work, guess what? That demands sacrifice. You see, the gospel, the good news, redemption, grace, it wasn't a disconnected idea. It was the power by which they lived. And friends, as we sit here today, we have the ultimate final sacrifice that's been made, Jesus. And we have to plead and bring the power of his blood into our lives. At home, at work, understanding worship and generosity. So that we live our lives by sacrifice, the one that's been made, Christ's, for us. And he even, God even drives this home further by mentioning a couple times, don't you remember you were in Egypt? <laughs> Take that in. You, know what it's, you want to know what it's like to be a horrible boss? Read the book of Exodus. Read about God's people, what they had to deal with. You want to talk about being a stranger and a foreigner? God's people knew it by their own experience. You want to talk about what it means to live in a place where you don't know their language and don't know the customs and don't know how things work socially and economically? God says, that was the life you used to have. But I've done this so that you would know forgiveness and hope and freedom to be holy. Beloved, the same is true for us in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've prayed a long time ago that we might be set apart, that we might grow from your word because your word is truth. So we pray that you would take the words here in Leviticus 19 as abstract and antiquated as it may feel or however it may read, they are pointing us to you. So help us to hear you and see you and live by your power. For your glory, we pray. Amen. But don't leave here today without knowing that God's blessing is on your life, that what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection means something in your everyday life. God is at work. God is at work. And these promises I'm going to tell you are being worked out in you. So if you would, raise your hands if you feel comfortable doing that and receive this from your God. And then try to live this week as if you actually believe that it's true. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he is also going to keep you.
This week his smile is upon you and he is going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come forever and ever, even now, his presence is with you. And one day he will bring shalom. He will bring peace. All because our Christ is alive. Amen.